0: Well, it was the worst of days, but not the end of them. The holy city, the city of David, the Zion of Israel, captured. The year was 586 BC, and God's holy city fell to Babylon. Now, what followed was a chilling, painstaking destruction of Judah, That is the region around Jerusalem. Cities were leveled and citizens deported and countless others died from execution and starvation and disease. It's the inevitable consequence of covenant disobedience to God. But just as the hands of a clock turn, so too do the conquering nations of the world one after another, conquered and being conquered. They warred quite often back in those days. It was the days of nations like Babylon and then Persia. Persia came along and conquered Babylon, the conqueror being conquered, and to the victor we know belong the spoils. Just like that, Babylon no longer rules Judah, but Persia does. Cyrus the Great, an ancient candidate for the humanitarian of the year award, if ever there was one, he calls for the return of the Jews to Judah. In fact, they can even load their luggage with all of the loot stolen from the temple by Babylon and take it along with them. No weight limit for checked bags. God used Cyrus To resettle his people. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, God speaks It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and He will carry out all my desire. And He says of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, Your foundation will be laid. Slowly, exiles return, houses go up, the temple rebuilt. Sacrifices begin. These are good days for the nation. They are back in the land. They are back in the city. The temple's bustling with activities. Priests performing their duties. Religions started. In waves, Jews arrive. Yet there is no promised kingdom. It hasn't arrived. No Messiah. No conquest. In fact, the Persian king still rules, add to this, pests consuming the crops, the poor are oppressed, many speak ill of God. In a relationship with God, religion resumed, God's people hit a ditch. That early exhilaration, that hope of living for God, it sputtered. It smoked, and it came to a rolling stop in the mud along the road. And along came a man named Malachi. Malachi was a prophet of God. It had been some 40 years or so since they last had a prophet, and he'd be the last for the next 400. In fact, the next time one did, he'd be a man named John, just a few pages over. And because he was a prophet, Malachi spoke like a prophet. And that means as we step into this new sermon series this morning, we're going to hear portions that are difficult to hear. And we're going to hear portions that are quite comforting to hear. And we're going to work through the book of Malachi over the next few months because all of it we need to hear. Some this morning may find themselves in a spiritual rut. It's been some time since you've enjoyed a close fellowship with the Lord. Religion worship has become routine and grown cold. For others, you may one day find yourself in a slump. You may know others who find themselves in a slump today or one day. And unless we learn what causes it, unless we learn what fixes it, there's a real chance that we'll just simply fall away. And I'm not talking about the atheist. I'm talking about the smiling Sunday attender polished on the outside but rusting inside. This must not be true for you and this must not be true for me. If you would, open up your Bibles to Malachi. What do we do when faith falls stagnant? What do we do when we're stuck in a rut? Well, Malachi begins with God. God. Any spiritual stall we experience needs to begin with God and with the love of God. That's where Malachi begins. And I want you to see this morning two evidences of God's love for you. God has set his love on you and God secures you in his love. Chapter 1, verse 1, Malachi begins the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Well, this is one of six discourses in Malachi. Some call them disputations. You hear the word dispute. There is a dispute between the people and between their God. Each of these discourses has basically three components. The first is some kind of a charge. God brings a charge. Something similar to a charge, but it's in that vein. There's then next a question. God is going to provide the response that Israel would make. This is often marked by words, but you say, or yet you say. In our first discourse this morning, in verse 2, God makes a statement, I have loved you. He predicts Israel's response, but you say. Thirdly, there's a response by God. He's going to respond to their statement. And this is the bulk of the text this morning. God begins speaking this response about halfway through verse 2. And he's going to speak it through verses 3, 4, and 5. This means, by the way, that the book of Malachi is going to read differently than other prophets we're more familiar with. There's a lot of direct speech by God in this book. Now, we know that all scripture is God's word, but I'm talking about direct speech by God. In this case, issued through the prophet Malachi. 85% of this book is God speaking directly, including almost all of our message today. Well, let's look then at our first point this morning. God set his love on you. God set his love on you. If you're taking notes, you could say, God set his love on me. God makes a statement. He makes a declaration. I have loved you, says the Lord. God loved Israel. That's clear enough, but left there, that may not be very reassuring just left there kind of hanging there in the past tense. In fact, if that was all it said, it would raise some more concern rather than give assurance if God loved Israel in only past tense. But we notice in our text that God says more than that. I have loved you. That indicates there's an abiding, ongoing love that God holds for his nation This is a love that's moved out of the past and it remains on the people even into the present. This is going to be more encouraging and more reassuring than the simple I loved you. And we'll notice that throughout our text this morning. God is going to speak in this abiding and ongoing tense. I have loved, I have hated, I have made. Israel asks, how have you loved us? That's the opening question. There'll be other questions in this book as God reveals their hearts, but this is the leading question. Perhaps even a a tip off onto the leading theme of the book or a leading theme in the book. Seven times in this book, they're going to ask God how. As though God must give some kind of accounting for himself. He graciously will, by the way. You heard that in our text this morning. It's quite possible that this question arises out of uh, some kind of cynical and self centered heart. They're looking at the world around them and wondering why things are the way they are or are different. Or it could arise out of a broken heart, a sorrowful heart. They're hurting. The suffering that they experience could really produce either emotion. And based on God's response, it seems as though they forgot what God did he brought them back from Babylon, and that he rebuilt the temple, that he set his love on their fathers. I'll give some concrete evidence of that in just a moment. But let's pause here for a moment, and and let me simply ask you, how has God loved you? How do you answer that this morning? Like Israel, you may need to look around And see ways that God's loved you. Like Israel, you may need to recall your deliverance. Like Israel, you may need to ignore what you don't have. And remember what you do. How has God loved you? Because I want to tell you, and this is where God is going with the message this morning. Those who do not have the Lord do not have all that you have. Believer, you are loved by God, period. And if you're writing that down, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. And you can write it, it all caps the word, period. You are loved by God, period. Because that statement is very significant. God reminds Israel that he loves her. And in this last book of the Old Testament, he's gonna take her all the way back to the first book to show her. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Here we learn how God has loved Israel. And as an extension, I'm going to argue, it's how he has set his love on all who believe. Now, his answer, as we know it, takes the nation way, way back. God can simply say, I love you. That's the end of the story. That makes more sense. Quite simply, kings don't need to answer their peasants. But God is a gracious God. And he does, in fact, answer the question. And rather than simply tell Israel that he loves her, he's going to show her. The scene goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. God made a promise to Abraham. He's going to make a nation from him. In chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. In chapter 26, verse 3, he says to Isaac, For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and give your descendants all these lands. Isaac, has a son named Jacob. And to Jacob, God says in chapter 35, a nation and a multitude of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Taken together, we can learn quite a bit about the Lord. We learn first here that God is really big on his promises. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to keep his promise. He is all about keeping promises. I will make, I will give, I will establish, I will multiply, I could go on. Second, it is God who drew Israel's family tree. He planted it and pruned it and protected it. At a point in time, God stepped into the life of a man named Abraham and he called him and then like this unbroken chain, God kept coming back to his descendants, giving land and multiplying seed. This is the origin of Israel. The questioning, doubting Israel of Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. God set his love on people in his time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Esau being Jacob's brother. Now, I think we can agree with the first half of that statement. That sounds a lot nicer than the second half. That sounds a lot more like the God that we know, and quite frankly, the God we're comfortable to share with others. But what does it mean that I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau? Well, let's tackle the ugly word first. Hate. Generally, you and I have a well developed theology when it comes to the love of God. God is love that tells us what God is like. Some of our favorite verses are about God's love. For God so loved the world. We love because he first loved us. Love is from God. But God also hates. He hates because he loves, he loves his glory. I am the Lord that is my name," he declares. I will not give my glory to another, nor praise to my idols in Isaiah 42. With a holy jealousy, he seeks to make His glory known to the nations, and nothing can steal it, nothing can compete with it. He hates those things which attempt to. He hates secondly, because He's holy. In Psalm chapter five, verse five, you hate all who do iniquity. God's going to permit no unholy thing in his presence. He hates anything that seeks to tarnish his purity. And throughout the Old Testament, he declares his hate. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, the perverted mouth I hate. In Isaiah 1, verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. In Hosea 9.15, all their evil is at Gilgal, the name of a city. Indeed, I came to hate them there. The point I want to make here is that to know God is to know him as a God who loves and a God who hates. And I'm not saying this morning that God hates everything the same way any more than God loves everything the same way. Surely God loves his sons and daughters in a way that's different than how he loves the beautiful fir tree, as majestic as it is. To interpret the statement of verse 2, we need to go back to Genesis, to when we first meet Jacob and Esau. Where is that? Is it in the ultrasound room? No. Do you meet these two at the reveal party? No. Do you meet these two for the first time in the delivery room? Not even there. We go back further than that to the nine months preceding their birth. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 22, the children struggled together within her, within Rebecca. And she said, if this is so, why am I in this condition? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, this is no normal pregnancy She's suffering. She's struggling with these twins, these boys, wrestling in her womb. That's not even a a good word for it. The word for struggle is used of a violent collision. Uh, You men are about to get into the book of Judges in your small groups. And and in chapter 9, there's a king named Abimelech. He's going to get hit in the head with a millstone. That's the same word used as a struggle in her womb. I mean, we're talking roundhouse level blows, Esau and Jacob. And God answers her prayer. This is a clue to the meaning of our passage this morning. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now listen, I'm going to draw four conclusions from that. And I want you to pick out which one is wrong. In that verse, there's two people, Jacob and Esau. These two people are born. In this verse, two nations will come from two people. It's going to be Israel from Jacob and Edom from Esau. In this verse, the younger will be stronger it's going to be a reversal of the norms of the time. The older will serve the younger. And in this verse, God learned what, he's, what Jacob and Esau will one day do. That is not true. God doesn't learn. God is omniscient. God knows all things. Our God doesn't learn, our God ordains. That is what God does. God knows all things. Paul's going to give us a behind-the-scenes commentary on what's happening in this passage in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For though the twins had not yet been born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. We're getting closer. What does it mean then when the Bible says, I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau? Is this speaking in terms of pure emotion as we might use the words today? I think there's more at play here than that. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that there's no emotion involved from God. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What a profound expression of love by God for his people. There's something almost poetic about that. He experiences emotions, but he experiences them perfectly, including a love for his people. Yet the love and hate of Malachi 1, I don't think it's strictly a statement of emotions. Is God actually speaking of the nations here? I mean, after all, we heard nations like Edom. We know Israel's a nation. And I think that God is speaking of the nations. We picked that up. It's a clue here. In verse 3, God's making the mountains of Esau a desolation. In verse 4, he speaks of a territory It's almost as though the change from Esau to Edom happens pretty seamlessly in this passage. And the same is true for Jacob. Going back into Genesis again, so certain was God that he would make a nation from Jacob, he just went ahead and renamed him Israel. But the text doesn't say, I have loved Israel, but I have hated Edom. No, it begins with personal names, with individuals, in the womb. In fact, Paul, in Romans nine eleven, which we read, he uses only personal names. God speaks of love and hate toward individuals and then the nations that come from them. Well, how about a different way of understanding this? Maybe it's a contrast. Maybe this is Malachi communicating that compared to the love that God has for Jacob, it's almost as though he hates Esau. I don't think that's a good interpretation either. In verse 3, God made the mountains of Esau a desolation. In verse 4, to the efforts of Edom to rebuild, God says, I will tear down. At the end, they're described as the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. It's not as though God loves Esau less. He actually treated Jacob with love and Esau with hate and those nations that came from them. So then when we read this passage, when we consider this account, we need to keep in mind what happened back in Genesis in the account we read and how Paul interprets it and understands it over in Romans chapter 9. We have a love here that chose. God sovereignly chose Jacob for a unique relationship. Not Esau. And this is just as God did with Jacob's father, Isaac, not Ishmael, and just as he did with his grandfather, Abraham, not Nahor and Haran, not his brothers, the point that God makes in this passage is that he set his love on Jacob, and he set his love on Israel. He chose her, he stayed with her, he is faithful, he is sovereign. The love and hate in this passage, I believe, are best understood in the context of God's sovereign choice. And this, in turn, yields four truths about God's love for you. First, God's love came at a real point in time. Abraham, going back to him, he lived as a pagan in a culture that was idolatrous. He lived with his idols. He had his popular religion. He lived a pretty normal life. I mean, we learn in Genesis that he was a a husband, he had a wife, he had brothers, he had a dad, and then God appears to him. God steps into his life. Can you remember when it became obvious for you that God loved you? That when you went at that moment from God loves to God loves me to God loves me, that's a big moment. God loves you, and God's loved you at a point in time. This is a real event for you in the past. It's continuing on into the present, and it's gonna go on into the future, into all of eternity, that God loves you. Secondly, God loved you before you existed. In Romans 9, 11, God chose Jacob, not Esau, and he did it before they were born. When they were born, they were twins, seemingly alike, cute and cuddly and combative. Esau, by the way, came first. He's followed by Jacob, and the text tells us that Jacob is clutching at his heel. Rebecca, no doubt, watching this unfold, realizing what was taking place in her womb. You're the one. God has loved you. And Paul again tells us in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. I read one figure that estimates that throughout time there's been 109 billion people on this planet and to the point of our message this morning, among those people, God loves you. You know what else is remarkable about this passage? You know what else is remarkable about God's love for us? Is that he loves us despite us. He loves us in spite of us. In Romans nine eleven, God set his love on Jacob and Esau before either had done anything good or bad you know what's pretty crazy about that? Jacob did plenty of bad. I mean, the guy earned the nickname deceiver. He did not deserve God's love. Jacob did not deserve God's love. Esau did not deserve God's love. No one deserves God's love. One of the biggest problems about this passage is not Esau I have hated, but Jacob I loved. What is God doing to love Jacob? What is God doing to love any of us? It is an act of boundless grace that God has set his love on you. It's by his sovereign choice that you are loved because you and I do not merit it. We do not deserve it. It is not owed to us. God loves us in spite of us. And lastly, God's love for you may very well upset society. The Lord loves to defy the norms of society. He likes to take the norms and turn them upside down. In the ancient Near East, the older received first choice. The Lord likes to flip that around. It was Jacob over his older brother. We read that. His son Joseph. It'll be Joseph over his brothers, all 11 of them. Listen, you may look around the world this morning. And you may see people in your life and in your hemisphere who are smoother and stronger and sexier and smarter and slimmer. It may appear as though they are more qualified for God's love because they look apart or fit apart. Do not envy them. God loves you. You and I may be just about the most unlikely candidates for the choice of God's love, but in God's kingdom, this is business as usual. It's worth mentioning as well that if God is loving you before you were born, does it not follow that he's going to love you even after you pass? It's worth mentioning as well, if God's gonna love you in spite of your works or your merit, is he not gonna love you even when you fail? This passage teaches us that God has set his love on you. I want us to see secondly how God's gonna then secure you in that love. that's where we go with this passage. We're going to see how God treats those that come from Jacob and those that come from Esau. The choice of his love on these individuals is now carried out at a national level. It's carried out on on a corporate scale or a big scale. In other words, what is true of Jacob and Esau becomes true of Israel and Edom. God secures you in his love. Verse 4, though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. If for the first time this morning you're just hearing that word Edom, I'll give you a little flavor for that word. Edom in the Bible to the Jewish people, is like the word Judas to us in our day. It carries that certain kind of emotion or reaction with it. The nation of Edom came from this man named Esau. In fact, just as Jacob was renamed Israel, so too was Esau renamed Edom back in Genesis 25. And Esau would eventually go off and settle a land named Seir, south of the Dead Sea, southeast of Israel, These two nations are quite close together, almost as though they're brothers. The nation of Edom is going to go on to become enemies of Israel. When Israel came up from Egypt, it's that glorious exodus event. They're coming oh so close to the promised land and they just need to to pass through this territory to get there. And they encounter their brothers, the Edomites. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 17, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard. We will not eat or even drink water from a well. We'll just go along the king's road. We will not turn to the left or right. We're going to pass through into our territory. What did Edom say? You will not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. Later, King David's going to come along and conquer the region. Edom will go on to remain a menace, a thorn to Israel. In fact, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, that's where we began our time this morning, Edom remained quite quite a, a cheering section. There were captives in Babylon who reflected on this event when Jerusalem fell, and there's Babylon, and there's Edom. In Psalm 137, The fury of Israel at this is recorded. Remember, Lord, against the sons of Eden, the day of Jerusalem, those who said, Lay it bare, lay it bare to its foundation. Daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, blessed will be one who repays you with the retribution with which you have repaid us. The book of Obadiah predicts her destruction. How bad do you have to be to have a whole book dedicated to your destruction? In a word, Edom would come to summarize in the Old Testament all of the pride and all of the arrogance of the nations. And apparently by the time Malachi wrote, the nation ceased to exist. She was attacked and she was scattered. Historically, a record records the ne- uh, Nabateens, an Arabian tribe, coming into Edom And eventually pushing them out, they're settling south now, south of Israel, in a place called Edomia. But even there, even there Israel cannot shake Edom. Because in your Bible, just a few pages over, a man from Edomia, a man named Herod the Great, is going to seek to kill all her babies in a town called Bethlehem. Well, we know in this passage that God has chosen to treat Edom differently than Israel. Judah is going to return to rebuild. Edom would not. The promise of a glorious future is made to Israel, the promise of a curse is made to Edom. The mountains of Edom would be a desolation. And God speaks in quite vivid terms as he, as he addresses Edom in this passage. I appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Anytime jackals appear in the Bible, it's not a good thing. They're often associated with anguish, with sorrow. It's been said that the howl of the jackal sounds like a grieving widow or a crying child. If Edom attempts to rebuild, what does God say? I will tear it down. This word is used earlier in God's treatment of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. In verse four, the Lord is indignant forever. That's a terrible condition. To exist is to be cursed. But I want to mention here at the same time that that God is so gracious that he remains gracious even to Edom. He blessed Esau, though he was not choice as Jacob was. He's going to command Israel in Deuteronomy 23, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And look at verse 5, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. God will set his love on those outside Israel, ethnic Israel, and the Messiah for them can be the Messiah for anybody who comes to God. If you believe upon Jesus this morning, you need to know that you are secure in his love. And God has set his love on you and there's nothing that can change that. This is God's message in our passage, that God is faithful and God is a promise-keeping God. And that when he set his love on his people, God's love for his people is set on them forever. It's secure We see here that God does not set his love on everyone, on Esau and then Edom, for example. But his people need to realize, and I think this is a driving force in this passage, that we are not them. Their end is going to be destruction. That's what he's trying to tell Israel. He's saying, look across the border. You are not them. I love you. And I am with you. And that's something we need to remember as well when it seems as though the wicked prosper in our day or the evil succeed, they are not loved by God, not in the same way that we are. And when we find ourselves in a spiritual slump, as the people in Malachi's day were, we need to remember the love of God. It is so complex, we can study this topic forever, but it's so simple that we can leave here with that knowledge this morning. He set his love on you a long, long time ago. And this was clearly confirmed. When he introduced you to Jesus Christ. If we ask God today, How have you loved us? I imagine he might respond with something we already know that he demonstrates his own love for us in this that while yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that is based not on our performance, that's too erratic. It's based not on our feelings. They're going to lie. It's based not on our religion. Our outward motions don't ever guarantee vitality. This is a love based on Jesus Christ. And if you believe upon him, you can be sure of God's love this morning. God has set his love on you, and God secures you in his love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for coming to us in our sin and in our weakness and setting your love upon us. I pray for those this morning who are stuck spiritually that they would find A renewed experience of your love today. I pray that you would meet us where we are when we struggle, and we would remember that you love us, and that you are sec- that we are secure in your love. May this truth be the foundation that we build on in the Sundays to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.